I remember enduring them or sitting quietly with them. Now I don't. Being all too familiar with workplace discrimination, Tasneem Chopra has made it her mission to champion multiculturalism, diversity and inclusion. Tasneem has received recognition with an Order of Australia Medal, an AMAA Woman of the Year Award and an invitation to present her own TEDx talk. When Tasneem speaks, businesses and organisations listen. Find out why. Peace be upon you all and welcome to another Safi Bros podcast. Alhamdulillah, we have an absolute pleasure today having Tasneem Chopra here today with us, uh, an amazing sister who has uh, done a lot of work in the multiculturalism world and leadership. And mashallah, she's uh, uh, done so many amazing things. She's on the drum and she can sort of fill us in on everything else as well. Mashallah, and all the work that she's done. Welcome to the Safi Bros podcast. Assalamualaikum. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure having you. Thank you for coming and giving us your time today. My pleasure. I think I would like to start as a young girl. Were we were born in Australia. I was born in Kenya. No way. I didn't I'm like know that. fifth generation East African born. So my family were all in East Africa for five generations. And then in the, I'll just put it out there, in the early 70s, my family decided to migrate to Australia. Any reason? Just Well, so Idi Amin was a uh, dictator in the uh, Uganda at the time, in in the 60s and 70s. And what was happening is a lot of people of South Asian background were being forcibly required to either leave or lose their homes and whatnot. So that was happening in Uganda, which was adjacent to Kenya, where I was born. And so my parents had to make a decision about do we risk uh, losing our home and our assets or instability or should we consider migrating? And at that stage, so my dad was a doctor at the local hospital, which was part of the Commonwealth because oh, Kenya wow. was part of the Commonwealth Nations. Yes, yes, yes. So he had an opportunity to, apparently I didn't really recently found out, he had the chance to relocate to Hawaii or Australia. Oh, wow. I know, but they chose Australia. And initially we ended up, we moved to Alice Springs for the first nine months. And uh, if you can imagine Nairobi, which is an equatorial city and it's 25 every day and it's green and it's lush and it's verdant and then going to Alice, wow. which was hot and dry and red, oh, dust. And red dust. So my mum was like, no, we're not, we can't do this anymore. And so within nine months we then moved to Victoria because my dad got another secondment to Bendigo which is where I grew up. Oh, wow, Bendigo. At the Bendigo Hospital, which was, again, part of the Commonwealth. And so he got a secondment to that hospital. And so, yeah, we moved to we moved to Bendigo and I was probably, I got there, joined grade one at the local primary school. How many How many in the family? We, it was me and my three sisters, two sisters. Two sisters. So I'm the middle child. Wow, mashallah. Which is a whole other conversation. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> no um, one listens to the little child apparently. <laughs> I need a microphone. To <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I grew up in Bendigo. I spent primary school there, high school there, and I didn't get to Melbourne until I finished year 12. Subhanallah. So very much a really parochial country town in the 70s and 80s, which, I, I mean, at the time I hated it. I wanted to live in the city so badly because I always felt like I didn't belong in the country. Um, it was a very parochial white Anglo experience yes. to be in that. And I, I crave for the company of people that look like me. And uh, the, the first time that I recall really 
seeing that experience was when I started attending the Muslim youth camps. The YMA? Yeah, because there was five Muslim families, four Muslim families when I grew up in Bendigo. One of them was um, Ahmed Hassan's family, the Egyptian family. Yes, yes. And they moved to Melbourne before I did. And when they moved to Melbourne, he found out about the camps and then he notified my parents and said, oh, there, there are these camps that are existing where young Muslims from all around Australia can attend and it might be an opportunity for the girls if they're interested to, to go. And so my parents thought, yep, why not? Because there's nothing like, we had, there was no madrasa, there was no Islamic oh. schools, there was no halal anything, especially in Bendigo. So I remember going to my first camp at the age of 13. Subhanallah. And then seeing all these people that were like black and brown and white and like I was, my mind was blown because I always, I, I mean, I, I figured obviously Arabs were Muslim, but I'd never met a European Muslim before. Oh, wow. And I, yeah. So I have written a chapter in a book called How I Happened, which is a chronicle of growing up Muslim in Australia. And, and that chapter focuses on my time in Bendigo. And there's one particular scenario during the youth camps where in my cabin there was a girl from Bosnia, which I'd never heard of. And I'm like, what's this Bosnia? What are you talking about? And she was trying to explain it. And then eventually, as, uh, my knowledge was so poor and sparse. And then she had to say, oh, it's former Yugoslavia. I'm like, oh, why didn't you say so? <laughs> I, my, my politics was so off-center at the time. And then I was very confused because she had blonde hair, blue eyes. Her name was Jasmina. And I kept asking her, so you're Muslim? And she's like, yeah. I said, but are you sure? <laughs> she took real offence, understandably. <laughs> and I just stormed out of the room and I was like, wow, she doesn't look Muslim. So I'm just asking, maybe she's here by accident because it's a nice camp. And yeah, it was no, a no big learning curve. Then, big eh? learning curve. Oh yeah, my God, I met Turks and Bosnians and um, you know, Pakistani, Sri Lankan, Bengali, um, Lebanese, Turkish. So that's um, when you got exposed to the That's community. when I got exposed to the breath and I realised that Living in Bendigo, I would wait for these camps in December, which oh. went for 10 days. Yes, yes, so, yes. And I think my parents were like, fine, go for 10 days. <laughs> just get all the kids out you, of You house. and your sisters or just you? All three of us would go. We were wow. the Chopra sisters. We went, the three of us would go. I don't know. And it was, I, it was literally the highlight of my year. Allah, I would, and that's where I learned so much more of the depth of my Brother Mahmoud was getting a lot of hasanat. Well, I met him. He wasn't... Um, he wasn't like an emir at those camps. I mean, Sheikh Fahmi was yes. one of the top. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. these were national. They weren't Victoria-based. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. I mean, we had, we had kids from New Zealand. Afik one first. Yes, yes, the Afik camps. Yes. That's like where they the old in. school, the original ones. Allah. The old school, the OGs. So Afik came, I mean, the YMA were much, much later. Much later, yes, yes. I didn't really go. I went to maybe one of those, Mashallah. but I went to a good six of the other ones. Amazing work. Yeah, I think it's the original ones from Sheikh Fahmi. They're still missing that. Yeah. We are missing a national... Oh, we're, we're sort of grasping on at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Like we well, get, the we population's got about, expanded. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you can do a full numbered camp within a state now. That's right. Yes, that's correct. But that's back true. then you had like 110 kids coming from Adelaide and and Darwin and, and Which connected Sydney. The back, back in the 80s, that was huge. Yeah. And New Zealand. So why, why Perth? Alice Springs. Alice Springs. What, what, what made them go there? So there was a Commonwealth hospital that had us a common. But that's it's it. a very interesting story because my, my dad was a, um, he was a pathologist. So that was his no histopathology and forensic pathology. Have you ever guys watched Quincy back in the yeah, day? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So <laughs> listeners may not know Quincy, but that was what he used to do. But when he moved to Alice, he was working with the Flying Doctor Service. Wow. At the time, I again I only found this out recently. The extent of the work that he did. I mean, he's, he passed away um, seven eight years ago now. Oh, but Hansela and he used to fly out to remote communities. 
Indigenous communities as part of the doctor's service. And he, he told a story once that when he would go out to these services, he'd go with a team of presumably white nurses and white pilots, whatever, but he'd, he'd get into the community, he'd treat the locals from there, from the remote townships, and they would say to him, they'd hold, touched his hand and they said, brother, it's so good to see a doctor looks like us. Wow. You know? And I, again, I only found this out in the last, maybe the last five or six years, but I can just imagine that kind of impact. Again, because he came from being a doctor in Africa, yes, East Africa, yes. where he would have had patients of, of all of all backgrounds, but then to be in Australia and then experiencing that wow. and to have that recognition and that connection, it must have been an, an incredible feeling. And then Bendigo. And then Bendigo. Bendigo. Yeah, yeah. So how how was life there? Was, were your parents very practicing? Were they? Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, they were. So we were visibly Indian looking, South Asian or Indian looking. Um, the the Muslim thing was something that I learnt to express when, like, when it was Ramadan, and I would be fasting at school. People were like, "Why aren't you eating? Why aren't you eating?" I was like, "Because in my religion, we fast in Ramadan." So I had all these rote responses. Because my, you know, my parents would taught us to pray. Oh. Um, during Eid, my mum would decorate the house and make certain foods on the day of Eid. So she'd decorate the house, yeah, but in in advance of Eid, make lovely food, tell us, you know, tell us about our history of Islam. But again, there was four families, or some families in Bendigo: wow. Indonesian, South African, the Hassans, and us. Wow! So we didn't really have a large world view of the nuance and the depth and and all the detail stuff, which is what I learned at camps. You know, so my parents did the best they could do, but they were also, you know, very proud of the cultural tradition. So I had a very strong Indian cultural um, rearing as well. And that included obviously diet and food, but Indian music and dance. And so the three of us, Chopra sisters, we were known for our Indian dancing. We learnt from a teacher <laughs> how to do dances and we would perform at the local YMCA for the Indo-Australia Club, which we were members of for like a good 12 years. SubhanAllah. Did a lot of cultural dancing and lots of classical singing of Indian songs. My dad and mum were very musical. My dad could play the harmonium and mum could sing. And it's very common in Indian tradition for singing to occur in community settings. It's a very, very common thing. So they would have weekly or fortnightly gathering of the many wow. 30 families in Bendigo who were of Indian background. And once a month there'd be a function and we would, I, had, I could sing about 15 songs at one stage. Wow, wow. And so we would perform them and sometimes we would dance. Any songs for us today? Not today. <laughs> Do you have, there's no, no backup, no backup. <laughs> the Safi brothers are your backup. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I loved it. And it, it really, it, I mean, it gave me a real appreciation for Indian culture and music at the time, Allah. which I still have. I probably thought it was pretty daggy then. Mm. And I used to sort of dread it, dread going to dance class and dread singing. Then, but now it's like, damn, that was so good. That was such a great insight into, you know, the cultural ancestry that I have. So I had that as well as the Islam. And, and in many ways they fuse what I do and my interest in diversity and culture. Because here I am, this kid born in Africa of Indian origin, growing up in country Victoria. I had a lot happening, yeah. you know, and Muslim. How did you reconcile with that? How? I embraced it probably... I probably embraced it much later in life, but I was always curious about where people are from. And I was, because of that, I was predisposed to wanting to know about people's stories. And that lent itself to me being really good at expression and good at English and drama and any kind of platform or frontier where I'd get to 
talk about my story or listen to someone else's. And then that informed my interest in, I ended up doing psychology at uni, which is obviously studying people. And my favorite unit in my arts degree was anthropology, the study of culture and society, which I think doesn't get enough of a rap. It's just the idea of studying where people are from and their heritage and their ethnicity and their stories and their lineage and stuff that if we, if we all did that, we'd have so much less friction and Mm. war. Because we'd, we'd appreciate where people are from yeah. and not demand they be from where we are. Yes, yes. We'd have a greater understanding of, wow, the depth and breadth of where you are, different religion, different culture, different history. And I was, and I still am enormously fascinated by that. So that's something that I've always had as a hobby and an interest oh, wow. in form what I studied in. I worked in community development after university and that was, again, engaging with communities from diverse backgrounds, um, which... If you are a person of colour in the community sector, you somehow get lumped with that role because you consider <laughs> to represent that community, even if it's Macedonian or Turkish. It's like, you can do it, Tasnim. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I'm doing that now. Um, and I did. I sort of would run with it. But it made me appreciate, I guess, my own difference and, and value that when you are coming from a diverse background and you have overcome stereotypes that people throw at you, you actually know what your capacity is versus what wow. people's capacity is of you. Yes, yes, 100%. And I see that, in, I saw that in colleagues, I saw that in friends, um, and I would see really bad media representation of minorities, including and especially of Muslims, and that would really anger me. So it was a situation, what am I going to do about it? Am I going to complain about it or am I going to get in there and make a noise and do something constructive? Mm. So I think that heralded my interest in community work. So I started off volunteering for the then Islamic Women's Welfare Council of Victoria in the late, I'm saying in the 90s, in the early 90s, mid-90s. And I was with that organisation for nearly 30 years. 30 years? Who, who was at that? So that one of the founding members was Leila Alush. Oh, yeah, wow. wow. Well, I know, yeah. So back in the day. And it started off as a group of women oh, sitting around a coffee table. Still around? Sarah. It's rebranded. It became yeah. the Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights. Oh, wow. And it, probably over 15 years ago it rebranded. And it's now gone from a group of women meeting around a coffee table talking about how do we help a sister who's, you know, in a domestic violence situation yeah. right through to being a national advocacy body for immigration laws and visa laws and protecting women and homelessness and oh, wow. substance abuse and all the issues that we face in our community. So it's like it's huge. And I chaired it for about 12 years and then I finally stepped down just before COVID because um, I've done enough. 30 years is more than enough. But that kind of experience gave me a, an entry point to actually walk my talk and say if I'm angry with the system and angry with policy and angry with treatment, what can I do? How can I advocate for change working within the system rather than just being angry with it all the mm. time, which is easier to do? Yes, 100%. Chuck the I'm not sure what the question was now. I'm just going to all around. <laughs> no, I just want to tell you, you took us through that oh. great journey. No, amazing. Okay. But take us back. I just want to go back to your, you know, your young days at school, university, and oh, wow. high school. Yeah. So take us that through that journey, Bendigo. You know, we managed the Bendigo Easter Festival. I hear. So. I used to go to but before <laughs> you were probably born. But, but yeah. Uh, yeah, it was the iconic, the Sunlong Dragon. So tell us, yes. private school, uh, state school mm. um, for primary, and a private Anglican school for um, for high school, which was also interesting because it was a boarding school. Wow. It was, I mean, we went as day students, but it had a boarding school component. And when I was towards the upper years of my high school, we had several, probably like 
five or six students from Malaysia, Malaysia were Muslim. Yeah. Yes, that's right. I heard. And yeah. because they were obviously Muslim, my parents were like, "Well, we must call them for Eid, and we must call them for Iftar." And and so yeah, we had there was the four guys and the one girl. I remember them really well. I remember their names, and they used to come home, and we became like the second family for them. So that was beautiful. But in terms of primary schooling, yeah, it was state school in the seventies. I was one of the brown kids there who. So how I much did you stand out comparatively? A like, lot. And, and how I was did, the only brown kid. So you're the only brown kid. Yeah, my sister was there. And, and how how did how was that? How was my that early like? memories were of kids in the playground calling me black tongue. Wow! Wow! And abo, and having to hide in the bushes during lunchtime so they wouldn't see me and find me. And having groups of girls who I was lumped together with when I started school to be my friend sets to get to know me. And then I remember like within a couple of years or sooner, like they, they could talk, girls can be so mean. Oh my God. (laughs) I remember them getting together with me and saying, um, Tasneem, because I didn't say Tasneem, they said Tasneem, Tasneem. We've decided there's too many girls in our group, so you can't be part of our group anymore. And I just like had no other friends. Wow. And I was like, okay, well, what am I going to say? I, I was very respectful of people telling me things without ever advocating for my own agency. Love it. I mm. kind of was raised to yes. don't, don't, don't cause trouble. So I just took, I accepted it. And so I, I had no friends. And then literally a few months later, there was another girl in the group with, with blonde hair and brown eyes who was told by the members that there was too many people in the group. And because she'd been adopted... Wow. She couldn't be in their group either. So then she and I became friends, Fiona. Oh, and I'm like, wow. I mean, you realize the intensity of how cruel that is in retrospect. At the time it was just like, well, what do I do? I'll just play by myself kind of thing. Mm, wow. And um, yeah, so that was primary school. That was pretty rough. And just the name, the name calling was mainly intense in the beginning when I was a novelty. After that, it just got a bit more to more of a being ostracized which then you just be dealt with. How did you deal with that? Like, how did you deal with I was just good that? at school. I was a very good student. <laughs> I was just like threw myself into my work and was like the teacher's pet. Um, did so, really so well. You, so you took the path of excellence. I did. And I think it was also, you know, expectations from home. And like, you need to do well. You need to, And my sister oh, was like an A student at everything. Ooh, so it was like, competition. she set the bar really high. So I never did as well as her. She took out the award for everything, every time. I just like would get like second and I was fine with that. I was okay with that, um, living in that shadow. But um, <laughs> but she was never she never flaunted it. But it was always a pressure. You feel yes, from your yeah, parents. You, you need like, to yeah, do yeah. better. You need to do well. She did better than you. What do you mean? Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, she was just like perfect. She was perfect. She was like the prodigal child. And I was like, well, I'm the middle child, so I'm I'm into stuff up, right? That's yeah. this expectation. But I, you know, I, I got my head down, and you find your tribe. And I think by high school, that I found the odd misfit. That, that's who I gravitated towards, the person who was just like a bit socially awkward or a real <laughs> arty person or so very, very nerdy. Like that, they, were, they, were my, they were my people. Wow. You know, and wow. then I found the subjects where expression was enabled to be where I would thrive, which was drama and English. Dreadful at maths. Like so poo-poo at maths and science. It was not even funny. Biology, though, was not so bad. But I just, I just looked at physics. I'm like, why? What? I don't, I don't understand. How will this help me in my life ever? I don't understand. So I, yeah, gravitated towards platforms that enabled me to be me, and people that I didn't have to cut and paste myself to fit a certain popular mold. Who, who became my crowd? Wow. Uh, yeah. Can I ask, uh, you know, young kids going through school now that might be in 
in Cairns now, a mm. Muslim family going through your situation, what advice would you give that young person going into uh, a community that's not Muslim orientated? What would you What would you tell that young person? What advice would you give them? The, you- like the magic of who you are is something that they the others were going to find out in time. Allah, mm. you know, you don't you don't have to undersell yourself or cut corners to be like the rest because the beauty of who you are is there for them to find out. When the time is ready, they'll come. Did you ever do that? Did you ever undercut yourself? Or oh, undersell yeah, yourself? all the time. You know, changing your name or trying to fit in or um, if food was served that wasn't halal, I'd just say I wasn't hungry. Mm-hmm. Or if there was ham in it, I'd pick the ham out and then eat the food because I didn't want to make a big fuss out of things. I would do all kinds of things to shortcut myself to survive and to be wow. okay. Rather than say, I don't like this, I can't eat that. And that's something I probably learned, you know, even much later in life Mm. is that idea to advocate for myself. And funny, I'd be telling others to do it, but I wouldn't necessarily do it myself. It was so much easier to literally preach to people about believe in yourself than than be the person to put up your hand and say, I'm sorry, this is is not working out for me. Mm. That came much later. It takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? It takes a lot of courage. Especially when you're the outlier in the room. You're already female. You're already brown. You're already Muslim. You're already like largely invisible. Why would you make a noise? People will just dismiss you as problematic. Mm. And and that happens a lot today. Well, it happened happened to us even like in in our schooling. I love how you you use it. Which university? So I started off at Monash for first year. I did psychology there and anthropology, which I loved. But then I noticed the psychology there was going to lead students towards a much more research component base and I wanted to do more clinical. And then I transferred to Swinburne. Oh, wow. Where I graduated from. Amazing. Um, And, yeah, I I thoroughly enjoyed it. I wish I had done anthropology, but um, (laughs) my parents were like, what is anthropology? (laughs) I mean, obviously my dad's a doctor and my mum's a nurse and like my sister did accounting and here I am doing an arts degree, which was already, which was already very, very, you know, radical. But yeah. anthropology it's was just It's not a doctor like, or lawyer, it's is it? It's not. It's no. not doctor, lawyer, engineer. It's not. <laughs> psychology at least sounded like a science. Yeah, you know, yeah, anthropology, yeah. what is that? Now, I, I, to quote them, which may or may not get edited, it was like, who will marry you? <laughs> so I had to drop the anthropology. Oh, no. But the irony that is. Was, that was the boss. <laughs> that was the boss. Yeah. But the irony is my entire life has been the manifestation of anthropology. So I'm a cross-cultural know. consultant. That's what I do. I work, in this, I work in the space of diversity and belonging and, and inclusion. And all I do is anthropology, which is. So I've come full circle from that moment. But, yeah. Amazing. Amazing. When did you find that where you said, you know, when you said to yourself, this is what I want? When was this that my moment? calling? And when, then when did you know that was your calling? I think it was very gradual. I'd, I think there's, there's two components. There's like, when did I decide for myself that what I am is enough? It was probably literally in the last maybe, how old am I now? 50. So probably in the last, I don't know, five years or so. Wow. But in terms of is this the direction I want to take, it was probably after – so after 9-11, I got thrust into responding to community calls for what is Islam? What does it deal with Muslims? Do they hate us? Mm, wow. So, and that would take the form of going to a church group or a neighborhood house or the kindergarten association who just, and I took that as a good sign because rather than them, them accept the rhetoric that was coming out of media, they actually wanted to know. Mm-hmm. So I. They were putting their hand up to ask. Yeah as opposed to accept it at face. And I thought, I, I need to go in like because like if, if I don't, then who will? And like they're going to just believe 
today tonight. Like mm. literally, that's going to be their, their their threshold for for what is Islam um, or current affair. You know, for, for context for the listeners, <laughs> if they don't know today tonight at the time is like not the best source yeah. of media. And so I'd have to go in there, and I'd go in there with what was my 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 I think my my main brand of presentation was Islam one hundred and one myths and misconceptions or myth myth busting. Islam 101, myth-busting 101. I know it has something to do with oh, that. Wow. So what does the real Islam say versus what you hear? Mm. So I started doing that on the, on, you know, on the side of work or when, the, when my kids were young and I was, I'd stopped, I'd taken maternity leave, I would still do voluntary community work. And through my association with the Islamic Women's Welfare Council Victoria, which was getting a lot of inquiries about, about Islam, but also a lot of issues of Islamophobia facing Muslim women. Mm. It was like, okay, we need to do something about this. So we need to respond. And so I would start, I started responding to, so just getting back to your question of when did I realize, my, when did the penny drop for me? I started responding to Islamophobia and issues of misperceptions about Muslim women by, by doing media training, which was one of the best courses I ever did, probably in my career in terms of how it prepared me for dealing with interviews and public presentations and, and speaking out. So I'd always enjoyed debating at high school. I probably should have pointed that out earlier on. So I didn't mind taking a platform. Maybe it's a middle child thing too. I'm not sure. But I didn't hesitate to use my platform if I had it when it was a debate or a talk or an interview. But strangely enough, in personal one-on-one interactions, I would clam up. Wow. And maybe that was an introvert thing. Maybe that was a South Asian, you know, Indian, be, be a good girl thing. But somehow when I had a mic and a platform, then I would never hold back. It's like wow. literally kind of a, I, I don't want to say bipolar, but it it was literally a, a way, uh, I, I feel like I had permission to mix it up and shake it up. When or, you were on stage. Yeah. When I was on stage or when I had a platform. But nice. when I didn't have an, I just, I was just I put up with all kinds of rubbish when I, when I wasn't, when I wasn't with the platform. So I'd respond to all this Islamophobia, do these sessions. Do can, media interviews. Can you tell us a few th- like situations that you've had and how people would approach you about Islam? Just you know, we we've all been there. Yeah, but I, mean, I just can you give us some some, some really some, some some funny okay. moments. I'll give you some real funny <laughs> moments. Some head scratching moments. Doing some media interview. I was doing. I was just doing the project. Um, I don't know how many years ago, and it was responding to some Islamophobic incident that happened overseas, and I was there to to deal with how the Muslim community feeling about it and to present the, the perspective. And I remember being in the, in the green room and the the makeup artist came up. This is many, many years, way before Lead or something, oh, yes, just yes. for context, like way, way before. And I, the, the green room makeup artist came up to me and obviously I didn't need to have hair because I, I had a hijab on. He has to do the makeup. And I remember it was a young man who was doing the makeup and he's like, I love, I love what you have going on there. I just, I just love the, I love the headdress. I love the headdress. It made me feel like I was some sort of show pony performing uh, like in Vegas or something, the way that he was like coming at me and it was like, can I, t-? and I had another woman like, you know, can I touch it? Can I? And like, before I can respond, they're touching my scarf and I'm like, oh, wow. oh, it's so soft. It's so pretty. It's so soft. So this fetishing and exoticization, it, it can, I mean, it, it, it never surprises me how wow. confident people feel in just thinking you're an object. Mm, like you're on show. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. can I touch? Can I feel? Like, do you talk? Do you breathe? And but one of my favouriteest um, <sighs> moments of media interaction was when I was doing an interview at as the chair of the Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights, 
and the photographer arrived to take a photograph. I'd spoken to the journalist and it, there'd been some Islamophobic incidents against women. There'd been, it, there'd been an incident overseas and there'd been a lot of collective punishment uh, perpetrated against women here, you know, bricks thrown through mosques, uh, through yeah. schools and hijabs oh. pulled off, hot water thrown through women, had traffic lights through the, through the windows of their cars. There were some really horrific things and we'd heard about oh. it. And I remember having to explain to the journalist what had been happening. And she was, she was very sympathetic and great. And she said, look, I'm sending a photographer over to take a photo to accompany the story. This was for one of the local papers, mm. the community leader papers, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe again for 10, 15 years ago. Photographer came, a young woman, and she decided to take photos, but a lot of photos. Can you stand here? Can you stand there? Can you stand at the desk? Then she's zooming in on my face. It was, it was like more than, more than comfortable. And she was really irritated and getting frustrated with me. And I remember I had, at that stage, I was wearing like a, like a hijab that was draping over. And she actually said to me, she said, do you mind lifting your scarf and putting it over your face so we can just see your eyes? Wow. And I'm like, what? Because, yeah, could you please just do that? And I'm like, why would I do that? That's not what I look like. She goes, well, for the look. And I'm like, wow. So she was trying to <laughs> literally stereotype me to create an image, which you can imagine that kind of image accompanying an article would just invoke fear in people. Mm. And she was literally playing into the tropes that I was complaining about that we we're dealing with. And I just thought, well, I'm going to be telling this story to, 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 you know, in public forums for the next you know, 20 years. And here I am. I believe, she's still, I believe she's still you know, a photographer. Um, with with some major broadsheet, but yeah. So the license that people have to say things to you, which are so inflammatory, I remember enduring them or sitting quietly with them. Now I don't. Mm. Have you ever changed the hearts? Have you ever physically changed the hearts? Um, I obviously in your work, obviously. I don't change. Maybe change perceptions more than hearts. So people will come and say, "I did not understand that about you know Islam or women or diversity." post a session when I'll go in there and do it. Or it'll come at me through a DM it, through my website that people will say, I attended your session last week, it was so powerful. Or I did appearance on the drum and I'm talking about things and they'll say, I did, you made me realise that perhaps I've got it wrong, perhaps I need to. Mm -hmm. And I don't go in there with the intention of targeting an individual's mindset. I just go in there to tell people what I think is wrong. Mm. And I wish I, could, I wish I could say that I'm moved by this, you know, spiritual calling to make people's hearts, to change people's hearts, but I'm just angry. Honestly, I'm just angry with the way people perceive women and women of colour and Muslim women and how Islam is understood in the media context and how there's such a bias towards nuance and balanced reporting. And I think uh, now that I'm over 50, I'm allowed to be angry. I'm allowed officially <laughs> able to be a grumpy woman. And so I do. Taking, and I take you're that taking that out of the school I, kids. I am. I don't hold back. I'm you remind me of the, the wog boy, you know, when the antipasta, he, they're laughing about antipasta, antipasta. And now they're all eating the antipasta. <laughs> <laughs> I have turned the tables into, are flip. I've turned into the woman I used to like cringe over, but that's who I am because I just think my threshold is just... Like enough already. We know better. It's not like you don't have mm. a you don't have a reference. It's not like it's 1980 and I have to believe what I'm fed. I can fact check. Yeah, I can research. Yeah. If you're just going to be lazy bum bum, and then I have, why should I have to deal with all that negative um, treatment and behaviour because <clears throat> you're too lazy to do the work? Uh, we had a warehouse in Brunswick and yeah. we subleased the warehouse to this bloke. Yeah, and lovely, lovely gentleman, husband and wife, mm -hmm. and quite affluent, and they were using it and. 
least yeah. in the warehouse for three years. And yeah. Well, at the time we were very small in nature and we, we had a big warehouse. We thought, we'll sublease some of it. So we spoke to the owner said, listen, the rent's too high. We're going to sublease some of the warehouse. Okay. Is it okay? He said, yeah, done. No problem. Um, you guys are good. And we found some guy coming from Shepparton. Yeah. And he wanted to use it to park his cars, his, his luxury cars. So he had a, an apartment in the city, in the Docklands, mm-hmm. and he was, you know, we were in Brunswick, so it was very close, tram away. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, three years later, we've outgrown the place, and we said, we've got to tell him he needs to go. Because mm. his lease is up. But he's such a nice bloke, you know. Yeah. How yeah. do we do that, yeah. you know. I said, it is what it is. What do you do, bro? We've outgrown. It's a good thing. You'll be happy for us. Our business has grown. Yeah, yeah. So me and Ahmed walked in there, and we, you know, we've written the letter, you know. Giving him three months' notice. We didn't give him one month. Which notice. is like contractual right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Three months is very generous. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. so me and Ahmed, look, you know, you know, we, I think we brought a box of chocolates as well. You yeah. know, look, sorry. How about Lewa? It was about Lewa. <laughs> but Lewa, yeah, we did. <laughs> and we said, look, you know, we're sorry, this is the circumstances. And and uh, he's like, what's this? He goes, Ahmed goes, you know, it's, you know, three months' notice. We, we've, got to, we've got to ask you to leave. Because your contract's up then. And he's yeah. looked at this letter and he's like, we should have killed you in World War Two. Whoa! No, no, no. His exact words was, "We should, we should have killed the whole lot of you in, in World, World War Two." Like that. And this is a guy we ate and, with. And Ahmed, I thought I was waiting for Ashton Kushta to come out punked. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. he'd been punked. Where is he? I'm waiting for the cameras. I'm looking. I'm just going, "What are you looking for?" I go, I'm, oh, "He's wow. definitely pulling a woolly on us here. He's yeah. definitely pulling it." And I've looked at him, and then I'm like, "What did you just say?" He said, "You heard me. We should have finished you all off in World War Two. And then I go to Eva, hold on, calm down. I said, Brother, no. I said, in the last three years of interactions, have we ever disrespected you or not treated you with utmost respect? Yeah, I treated you like my own father. How could you say that? Yeah. Like, how could you say that to yeah. me? And his wife was sitting in the his corner. His wife was in, like, he was and enraged. She was shocked. But he was, an, he was, he was a veteran from Shepparton, old school. Yeah. We didn't like, know that. That was ingrained. Yeah. Yeah. It was so ingrained that, that we, we were shocked. Wallahi. We, we, me and Ahmed, we left there. I was like, we were scratching our head. We were like. Yeah, you just. That was so challenging. That was very challenging. You know somebody, right? Three years. Like we've Aiden with them. We're we're talking about he used to leave his keys to his warehouse with us. To check up on us when he used to go to Shepparton for three months. Wow. That's what we're talking. Like, and we're we're a good judge of character. People, you know, people. He, that was (laughs) one day. (laughs) We weren't seeing coming. Like, do you have anything like that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I don't have a warehouse. So that's really hard. It's really hard to compete with that. But I remember in year 10. We know year nine. Again, this is Anglican private school in country Victoria. I'm the only one of the only Muslims in the entire school, bar a few a few boarding students from Malaysia. And I had to attend RE, it was standard, you know, mm, religious education. Yes. So that's fine, whatever, whatever. We had a young guy come who was a born again Christian. He was telling us about his, you know, his heady, heady deal, interactions with drugs and alcohol, and then near death experience, then finding God, then coming through, then traveling the world and spreading the message of God. Fine, fine, okay, all good. He proceeded to tell us about how he'd been in Malaysia. And during his time in Malaysia, he goes, and I was spending some time with some colleagues that I had there, and he goes, they were of the, the Muslim background. Um, but we all know that their prophet Muhammad was a murdering, their, their Muhammad was a murdering swine. Wow. Right? And I wasn't really paying attention because I'm like, yeah, whatever, RA class. I'll just, you know, be a polite student and attend. When he said that, I'll never forget that I felt my heart pounding so loudly that I was sure somebody could hear it. And sure enough, the guy next to me, his name was Dougal, bless him, he, he actually turned and said, are you okay? And I looked at him, my eyes were bulging out of my, at my face and I'm like, I need to say something. He can't just say that. 
you can't just say that and that be okay. And everyone else has heard that and it hasn't been. And that was my first experience of, you know, fact-checking and, and calling out. Wow. And I just put up my hand and I said to him, again, because, again, I've, I've been raised not to question authority and, and, and not to, to ever say, you know, to, to counter somebody who's, who's a leader or who's a teacher. You, you know, do, and this guy was a guest teacher. So, you, I mean, so it was really hard. And I'm like, excuse me, sir. But don't you think it's more of an opinion than fact to say that the Prophet Muhammad was murdering swine? That's all I said to him. And he, like the blood drained from his face. Because he didn't expect there to be a Muslim kid in a country Victorian school. (laughs) (laughs) Back in the 80s. And he's like, oh, oh, I've never seen anyone backtrack so fast. Oh, no, no, like that's not what I meant. Like, you know, some of my best... Some of my best friends are Muslim. Yeah, that's a good thing. Oh, I'm like, okay. Yeah. And, and like, yeah, that, no, that's not <laughs> what I mean. Like, I think, I think it was, I think he used something like you took it out of context or you didn't understand. And I didn't, I remember him, I don't remember the extent of how he backtracked, just that he backtracked. And I just felt this pressure valve release. Like, that I'd said something. And that I didn't let it go. And it's that moment of, if you, you know, if you see an injustice, feel it with your heart, feel it with your hand, feel it with your mouth and say yeah. something or do something. Right. And that was probably my first interaction of having to defend Allah. Islam in a it's way amazing. that I never had to. And I never told my parents about that because I would have been like, why did you speak up against the teacher? <laughs> so I just like, I just, I just held on to that one. Subhanallah. And it was very challenging and made me really, really anxious and nervous. But at the end of it, I felt vindicated. That's amazing. Yeah, subhanAllah. I had, I had a very similar situation because I used to do RE as well. I went to St. Joe's. Um. There's no Islamic schools back then, so mum wanted the best education for us. And I remember watching Malcolm X, the movie. Mm. And obviously one of the one of the obviously he's in jail and, and the preacher's talking about Jesus peace be upon him and they've got the white photo and Malcolm X stands up and says, Where was Jesus born? And he says, Bethlehem, where is Bethlehem in mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. Uh, Palestine? And and are they what color are they? And they're all <laughs> olive skin. Yes. He goes, why are you worshiping a white god with blue <gasps> eyes? Yeah. So I went back to school. I got I got some ammo on this teacher. Yeah. So he's talking about Islam as well, and because he was talking about uh, different religions, and it, they didn't know I was Muslim, same like you. And yeah. I said, I said to him, it's interesting. Can I ask a question? I did exactly the Malcolm X uh, movie. Oh, I got wow. kicked out of class <gasps> in front of everybody. And all the students, my close friends, said, what you're saying was, is, is really, you know, of substance. They kicked me to the principal and the principal gave it to my life for questioning the, their faith and questioning. Oh, really? Yeah, because back then as well, which I found out recently, you couldn't put a Muslim kid in a Catholic school without one of your parents being Christian. Oh. So one of our parents had to tell the school that they were Christian. If they were both Muslim, they, this oh, kid, the kid was not allowed to come. How did you get in there? One of our parents said they were Christian. Oh. <laughs> That's oh, the only way you could yeah. get into a yeah, Catholic school know, then. you got to do, yeah. Yeah. I didn't survival. know that. Survival, oh, right? Subhanallah. Yeah. But the, there was the yeah, they, they wanted to change my, because I went to St. Joseph North Melbourne. Yeah. They wanted me to be Arnold. But Arnold <laughs> wow. No, and I said that. And now we use that as a nickname for him, Arnold Keith. <laughs> of all the names, not Adam, like yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger back then. Arnold? <laughs> I remember in grade five that I had to do RE at a state school, which was, you know, that's how state schools operated back in the 80s, 70s. It would have been, I don't know, but maybe it was 1980 actually, grade five. And the, I remember the, the, um, the RE teacher was, I think he was a new, he, the equivalent of a new HEP, but back in, back in the day. And he was talking to children in the classroom about Jesus, Islam, but he's like, okay, how many of you think, you know, you know the story of Jesus, like kids are putting up their hand. I'm like, yeah, whatever, Christmas time, whatever. I didn't really understand the depth. And then he said, how many of you think that Jesus was 
white skinned. And I didn't put my hand up. I remember putting oh, my hand wow. up. And I didn't even know that he was not white. I just, I just, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I don't know what possessed me. And I folded my hands. Everyone else put their hand up. And he, and he, and he leaned his hands on the front desk and he told the class, if Jesus had been white skinned, he'd have been a freak. Wow. And he looks at me and he smiled. I'm like, I won. <laughs> and I, and I wasn't bite. even trying to win, you know, but I won. And he goes, where, where, where was Bethlehem? Where was, you know, and it was like, oh, yeah, I guess it was. So that was very unexpected to me. And that, what a progressive teacher yeah. to take that and like, yeah, it was such an opportunity to be inclusive. Yes. Without yes. me realizing it. And I'm proud I didn't put up my hand and think he was white. I'm because then I would have felt really dumb. <laughs> but I was stubborn and he goes, Yeah, he'd have been a freak if he was white. And I yeah. never forgot that. SubhanAllah. Mashallah. Mashallah. So you've had a quite a fruitful <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean this is stuff that I'd forgotten about now because <laughs> it's all coming back now when we, we talk about it. But I guess there were a lot of incidences, you know, good and bad that you have on the way that make you Make you who you are, and and, and draw yeah, yeah, yeah. and endear endear towards people that are on the same line of thinking. And I know I have good solid, you know, Christian friends, good solid Jewish friends, good solid Muslim friends. But in, but then I've had lots of interactions which have been very, how shall we say, sketchy within our own Muslim community. Yeah. Often, mm, yes, from yes. from people like, why are you doing that work? Yeah. Why why are you advocating? It's the hardest thing, isn't it? Why are you advocating for this family violence stuff? That should be we can work it out. I'm like, mm. But sometimes you're not working it out. Sometimes what you're doing is actually making it worse. And having those difficult conversations oh, wow. with community leaders has probably been the biggest challenge that I never expected. Wow. Oh, wow. Mm. Can you give us an example? Oh, I don't know if I can. <laughs> Come on. I don't know if I can. Classic. <laughs> don't, don't worry. We've, we've had Sheikh Khoda. He's a, you know, ISIS had him on the topic. <laughs> yes, yes, oh. he, he said to us that yeah. uh, oh, wow. both sides wanted him dead. So <laughs> ISIS put a hit on him oh, and the ultra-white put a hit on him. On him. Yeah, because they said, yeah. he was, he, they said he was ISIS and the other one said he was working for the government. They both wanted him dead. <laughs> But in many ways, those two aligned on many other topics yeah. anyway. Now, so that's, that's not even news anymore. That's like, yeah, take a number shot here. It's like, that's all of us now. No, but I remember back in the day when we having uh, some incidences of, um, I think it was women having, I think, difficulty negotiating divorces or there was some issue. And it was, so we had an internal meeting of community leaders um, from various peak bodies within, within, within Victoria um, and it's like we have a crisis, we need to resolve it. And it got through to the media that some Muslim women are having trouble even getting divorces and having to escape violent marriages because their husbands are using, you know, mm, all kinds of things wow. over their head, whatever. It was pretty It was pretty intense. And I'll never forget being in a room with some of our community leaders who, when we were talking about, I was representing the Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights and representing women who were escaping violence. And they were representing some of these some imams, I think it was, who had been um, performing marriages in some cases or not not enabling divorces of certain community members and it was causing a real difficulty for these women in their lives. Wow. And I remember um, that a particular case was being shared without the names being mentioned and someone said, "I, what did the person say? They said, you have to understand, Sassim, that we are going to stand by the imam in this particular incident because he's a high-ranking and highly respected leader in our community and that is our priority. And I remember having to look them in the eye and say, well, my priority is protecting women who are being beaten. Wow. And like the room just went. And 
let's just say it's been a tricky relationship with me and that community leader for some time. But like sometimes the, the hand that you're dealt with is what you have to work with and sometimes being that one person in the room to call out the elephant that nobody wants to talk about. It's not easy, but you, someone's got to raise it. Someone's got to raise it. And I, you know, I didn't have anything to lose. I didn't have any personal connection to the, to the client or to the man, but I thought if I don't say something and we don't say something, it just goes on. To me, these, um, the way our communities responds to and negotiates tense issues, yeah. um, leaves a lot to be yeah. desired. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're getting better. Yeah. <laughs> no, there is. There, yeah, I mean, there is some. There, I mean, I see a lot of good people on the front lines doing the work. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you, it, it's like with everything. You're always going to get detractors, naysayers, people who yeah. put you in your box, tell you stick into your lane. And I'm used to that from the mainstream. I'm used to that from you know executive level and yes. governments and media. Yeah. But when it comes from the community, I just don't have any patience. I'm yeah, just like, yeah. you know what, dude? I've got enough. It's to, always got harder enough for to your own people, isn't it? It's, it's more disappointing. Yeah. yeah. It's more disappointing because you expect that from... Yeah, that's why you expect it. Yeah. You don't expect it from your own kind. No, you don't. Subhanallah. Yeah, that's yeah. the tough thing. Uh, moving, moving from that to sort of some highlights, I think. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear like your proudest moment. Um, proud moments. You know, it's, it's the ones that you don't see coming. It's, okay, how do I put this? So I remember going to give, and I've done a number of talks in, in schools where I... I'm invited to be a guest speaker at a, at a school, public school, private school to students because some of the moments uh, I'm, I'm invited to come and talk on issues of identity and belonging. That's one of the really, was a really big theme in high schools at one point yep. because it related to English unit that was studying and the novels they were reading. It was about identity and, and, and in some cases the books were about someone of Greek background or Lebanese background or African background. And so the students were studying um, what it's like for that person to, to navigate two cultural playhouses at once, right? Nice. And so I'd be a guest speaker and talk about my story, whatever. Wow. And I remember coming to one school was like this private elite girls' school. Oh God, I now remember a horrible incident I'll talk about later too. But at the private elite girls' school I went and it was mainly students that were pretty Anglo um, with a few maybe, uh, maybe Chinese-Australian background. There was a couple of um, brown girls in the back, right, whatever. But I, I gave my talk. And had Q&A and it was really riveting and the conversations that students and younger people ask you are always the best because they don't have a bias. Yeah. They'll just tell you what's on their mind yes. and there's no filter and it's like it's <laughs> wonderful. I get, sometimes you get the best questions and the craziest questions but not the usual formulate questions that you get from adults sometimes. Mm. Not you guys. Though. Scripted. Not you guys. <laughs> the scripted ones. Yeah, yeah. And so I did my bit, would go home and then like a few hours later I'm looking at my inbox and there's someone who's gone and located me by Googling me because young people are very efficient. They'll Google you. They'll realize you have a website. They'll realize they can message you through your website and they'll message me and they'll be like, you came to our school today and can I just say that I've never had, um, I've never been so inspired to see a speaker that looks like me come to, come to our school. And I was like, whoa, that's, that's really, really beautiful. Um, and to be feel motivated and I've had other kids from some Islamic primary schools when I've come out. She got mobbed in the toilets by a bunch of young kids because they were like, oh, we've seen you on the telly. And like they run up to you 
and they, they cling on to you and like you're trying to come out of the bathroom and they're all over <laughs> you and someone wanted me to sign something. And I'm like, do you even sign things anymore? I mean, it's just like it's not even a thing. Take and, a selfie, God <laughs> Exactly. They haven't. They, they're in primary school. They don't have phones, thank goodness. But this little boy, a little girl came up to me and she's like, oh, because of you, I want to be a writer now. Wow. Write my story. And I'm like, Wow. Amazing. Um, Just don't know so whose heart you touch. It's, it's so powerful. And, and that, like we were speaking before, you know, if uh, if you can do it, so can we, you know, if they can see it, they can see that you know, light. You know, well, that's the, the adage in diversities, the, the, the mantra is if you can't be what you can't see. Exactly. Right? So when you demonstrate that role model capacity in a way that's approachable and that's friendly and that's realistic and like I didn't have to be Elon Musk with a billion dollars to be mm. able to get to what I did. I just... You, know, you, you try and be a decent person. You try and call out an injustice. Oh, you try and be truthful and authentic in your representation of yourself. And yeah, the kids can see right through it yeah, when you're yeah, not being yeah, genuine. Yeah, they yeah, have yeah, a very yeah. discerning filter, right? They do, mashallah. So we talk about the retreat, seeing is believing. Yeah. When you see it, you believe it, especially when it comes to, you know, yeah. you, you, you having that identity that somebody else has as well. Yeah. SubhanAllah. It's amazing. And I remember there was an inner city, you know, inner city school that I went to again. We were really, really diverse. And I was like, why are they calling me to come and give this talk? So I did and I went and gave the talk and um, the students were really very progressive, switched on, like year 11 and 12 students. I'm one of those schools where they don't have a uniform and everyone's just like, you know, you know talk, calling their teacher Jan and John and like, like it's a really, really modern school, but really smart kids. And a girl, a young girl um, with hijab, I think she was of East African background, and she came up to me and just literally whispered to me, we've never had a teacher or we've never had a guest speaker that looks like you. You're the first one. Wow. And I was heartbroken, though, that it took her until year 11 to see a teacher or a, a guest speaker come and speak in a way that they could resonate with. Yeah. Um, and then I looked around, the entire teaching body was all Anglo. Yeah. And I'm... And there doesn't have to be because I know I can like reel off maybe you probably too, 12, 15 teachers we know from our community. Hundred percent. And like, why are they not? Why are they, why are schools not hiring in a way that reflects? This is what this is the work that I do in diversity. It's, you know, you need to represent the communities that you serve in the in the organisational makeup that you have, mm. especially at who sits at the table. Hundred percent. So diversity in leadership, if it's not reflecting who you're serving, you are missing the mark in terms yeah. of what kind of nuance, what kind of buy-in you're bringing, 100%. what kind of what kind of, uh, you know, cultural contributions that you can make, the networks that you have, the so, linkages that you can make. Allah, you so miss it out, right? You see, and I see that happening in schools like at a really early stage and that I guess that informs a lot of the work that I do in the diversity space. I was speaking to the health department today and I said one of the conditions should be working for council, you must live in the Hume area because they've got half of these staff wow. that live outside the yeah. community and don't know the no. community whatsoever. No. I said, I think, that's what I said. I said and that's not even, that shouldn't even be radical. That should be like logical. Yeah, because you, you live in the Hume. You should be working for the Hume so yeah. you can understand the people. Yeah. To, to, to just touch on base on that, I was just speaking to Pamela today. I was speaking to her. She goes, that's a great idea. I'm going to put it to the mayor. It, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. We, we see that even, even like we've seen that. I was speaking to a friend of mine the other day and he said to me, a house inspector came to check him up and he's got a shop you know, in country Victoria. And he goes, the person came from a different locality completely to check up on his shop. He didn't even understand logic of the area yeah when you when you're bringing outside talent in you're getting people talking at you not to you yes because they're going to come back from they're going to speak to you from the mindset that is centered on their life experience and and, and their worldview right yeah. but if you're speaking to people who get it from that place and that's what i say about cultural diversity when you have people from a cultural diverse background sitting at a table 
because diversity is so much more than gender. Amen. Yes. Right? Everyone seems to think gender is balanced, which is important, but it's not everything. Because right. if half your population are women, but all the women are from the same postcode and from the same ethnic background and have studied at the same university and done <laughs> the same course and can send their kids to the same school and drive the same cars and will be buried at the Melbourne Cemetery, how is that representative of who we are? 100%. One in one in two Victorians are either born overseas or have a parent born overseas. Oh, wow. That's who we are. But that diversity is not modelled and reflected back in leadership and non-decision-making tables in this country and in this state. And until it is, we're always going to be getting close to but not quite hitting the mark when it comes to content development yeah. and service and marketing. And so amazing. I guess that's the work that I do in the DNI Shalom. space. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Allah wiki. Mm-hmm. Subhanallah. So tell us what are you working what are you working on now? So where where are you up to at the moment? So I'm on a few boards. So I sit on the advisory committee for Fire Rescue Victoria, which is in, you know, kudos to them for recognizing that in terms of diversity and engagement, they need to be doing, you know, better, right? So that's been an interesting uh, appointment. And prior to that, I'd been on the board of Ambulance Victoria again oh. with an opportunity to really interrogate how is a state service that's responding for all Victorians tracking in its ability to really target Victorians of all diverse backgrounds. Were you part of the, because they, they're they doing the iftar now, were you part of that as well, mm. that growth? Mm. Yeah, Amazing, that's when they, yeah. That's we went, when they we, started, yeah. yeah when Mashallah. they started, we, I was... We did, their, well, we did one of their catering jobs. That no, was no, my, f- that was my did, first year on the board they started did, iftar, yeah. yeah. We did with Dr. Amor, remember? Yes, he yeah, was yeah. one of the, yeah, was one of the yeah. guest, guest speakers, Mashallah. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So, again, I mean, it's it's an opportunity to acknowledge that we... And it's not just about engaging with Muslim communities. It is about engaging with everyone yeah, and, and everybody yeah. and understanding that breadth and that depth. And I think that's also been growth for me in my career as well, that it's so much more than just within our community. There's this whole engaging with Indigenous communities Mm. and newly arrived and asylum seekers and long-established communities that somehow never see themselves reflected in an organisation when it comes to leadership and when Mm. it it comes to the content of an organisation. So what do they do? They do their own thing. Wow. We have our own community groups. We have our own, which, which can be okay, but the reality is governments are there to govern for all not just for one cohort. Yes. So they have a mandate to ensure that they fund you and they're only going to fund you if they see you and they're going to see you if they know that you're important. They're only going to know if you're important if the people at the decision-making table are from that community. So you've got to work backwards and think, I always look at what does utopia look like in Victoria or Australia? And it looks like free access and service for everybody from whatever background, whatever socioeconomic class. And in order to get there, you know, it, it, it starts with who's making funding decisions and who's making choices of content and who's developing the programs. And mm. So I do a lot of work in the arts space because wow. how does the arts in our community and the creative people in our Muslim community is insane. Like we have so much talent. Yeah. But much like the Muslim community, I see diverse communities, whether it's African Australian or South Asian Australian or Chinese Australian um, you know, whatever the diaspora is, I don't see them getting platforms and having shows or having films or having the same kind of funding and traction that goes to, say, art, ballet or opera mm. or theatre, which is fine, that, but that's only half the population. Yeah. yeah wow. So why don't we, why are we not mixing it up? Why are we not allocating funding? And, and often it's because those communities don't even know how to access the funding. They don't even know it exists. Even. They don't know it exists. They don't, mm. the culture of knowing how to apply for funding in the state government yeah. Is like a whole other is, is like a whole other degree, you, you say, and, and there's a knowledge gap because the people who are setting the parameters for that 
aren't coming from those communities. Yeah. In the same way, they don't live in the, they don't live in Hume. They don't come, so they don't understand. Like, well, everybody knows. Oh, we were saying that the other day because we went, we had the on a watch to watch the comedian. What's his name? Uh, 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 Basim, you know. yeah. Basim, and we Yunus. said the Muslim community is needing entertainment. Yeah. We don't have it. Yeah. We don't have anything where we can plug into. Mm. We don't have, like you just mententioned, subhanAllah. Yeah. We just, we're yeah. talking about that. Because there's no lack, and there's no lack of talent. There's there's no no, there is a lot of talent. We have there a lot, a lot of, of it's, talent. It's the platforms. Because the platforms are governed by people who are coming from a particular from a particular socioeconomic and cultural group. Amazing. They don't understand. They need to make place at the table. So it's about having difficult conversations with, like, you need to extend your table. Yeah. How, how do you how do you find that, the top end? Challenging. It makes people really uncomfortable. Wow. But that's, that's, that's okay. Is it because say, you're putting a mirror? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I can say that because I'm coming as an independent person. I'm not, yeah. I don't work for government. I don't work for a consulting firm. I'm coming in as, as, as an independent and saying, you know, you, I, I give them the data sets and then I'll compare, I'll show them evidence of research, say, by a nice, <laughs> respectful Western-funded organisation like McKinsey or Boston Consulting Group that will demonstrate as soon as you diversify the mix at your table, your profits will increase and then they're all paying attention. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, I can make money from diversifying? Yeah, okay. Done. <laughs> Subhanallah. Yeah, the money's the hook. Ta- tackle with the love. <laughs> yeah. love of the heart. That's how I mean. If Follow I'm, the money. Right? <laughs> if I know we're talking about that, we should be organising an event a month minimum. We should be hiring out a major place and doing an event Mm. That's art, culture, education, whatever. You know what I mean? Whatever it is, you know, like even like mosaic, whatever. <laughs> but we should get people out there and, and doing, because there isn't much. And subhanAllah, like, you know, Bessem Yusuf was sold out, you know, that day. It was, yeah. He was sold out because yeah. why? And, and every, you know, and we, we saw the, the mm. people there were all mainly Muslims, yep. like, you know, 80% yep. Muslims, yep. they say. And, and yeah. that's the ones that went and paid the $80 to watch mm-hmm. him, you know? Mm-hmm. And there was a lot, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It was very entertaining too. <laughs> and yeah, entertaining, but, yeah, I missed that. I was overseas. The day I came back from overseas, but I, I heard it was sold out and it was amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Allahu Akbar, and we do need that. There's no doubt. Maybe we can talk about how we get funding. <laughs> <laughs> I don't work for the government, so I can't tell you that. But yeah, but, but the process is just riddled with understanding the culture of, of funding in, in, in the sector. And that is a very specific speak. And I mean, it's, it's a long convoluted way of saying the systems are designed by people that are very disconnected to a lot of a lot of the state mm, mm. and so they it's even when you apply for a job these days they'll ask you for things like um not just the selection criteria there's a particular term that they have um in job applications that you have to be able to meet and demonstrate which just to answer that i mean i, I have like a master's as well and I, I look at it and i'm like i can't do this this is really difficult how do i answer this question oh, and what they want of you is so formulaic and of a, of a certain of a certain format that doesn't actually reflect your skills mm. it just shows if you can answer the question yeah that's what i had because the only job i ever applied for was key selection criteria key selection, yeah oh my god so kind of like when i applied for the department of justice my first ever job that i've applied for in yeah. my history of my existence i applied for one job in which is the department of justice yeah and when i got the application it was oh my god and convoluted Oh my God. And yeah. then, and believe it or not, I had like a, a senior writer mm. write it with me. Mm. And, and, and I came in sixth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I was the last person to be interviewed and I yeah. got the job. Yeah. Uh, but I had the yeah. skill set, I had the yeah. capacity, I had yeah. all that. But, but it just showed I had yeah. to translate it into that for it to fit. And I was so, so, so challenging. And well, I went through four reviews by four different people. At the risk of being, you know, 
radical, but I'm going to say it anyway, is it's, it's about decolonizing those structures, mm, decolonizing yeah. job applications, decolonizing board mm. memberships, decolonizing application processes so that they're actually accessible for everybody and not just one particular mm. cohort who continues to get the funding to produce the same content that's seen by the same audiences and perpetuating no change, right? Yeah, yeah. So stuck in the loop, the circuit breaker in that is, 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 is diversity and leadership. Yeah, yeah 100%. And That's what you're doing, Michelle. Well, yeah. you try. But <laughs> sometimes just want to stay home and, you know, sit on the couch and with my cat. There's no challenge, there's Sit with my cat and watch Netflix. All the old saying, you speak very good English. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, you're different to the others. You're different to the others. You know, you're not like, not like those ones you see on the television. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, yeah. We all have it. We all get it. We, yeah, I get complimented on my command of English and uh, my grass. Like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, like, where did you learn? Like, what, what's that accent? And I'm like, Bendigo? Like, that's, that's where I'm from, you know. Subhanallah. So. <laughs> you know what you should say next time? <laughs> Please. Saudi Arabia, Sharia. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, my, my best comeback is when they say your English is pretty good. I, my best comeback is yours is pretty good too. Uh, yours isn't bad. <laughs> it's like keep, keep, keep at it. Keep at it. Humor is a great antidote for a lot of the stuff that I deal with. I think it's, yeah, again, again, it comes back to the arts that I really enjoy. I think arts is a medium, whether it's comedians or yeah. writers or filmmakers or performers or musicians or poets, they have a way of shifting the narrative in the public realm that, can just be be seismic in its impact in a way that yeah. you know even more than a policy can make a politician or it can make you hear a really powerful song or a poem and it stays with you it shifts you mm. um, or you read a really good book and it's like it transforms yes. um, you know and I think that's the power of art and I I think that for me that's probably going to change the world before you know oh, political that's quite, revolution like, if you look at it like look at Islam and, and the yeah. amount of investment they had like you know in the that era of yeah, arts, you yeah. know, like you look at the Andalus, Allahu yeah. Akbar, you know, that was like the mm. epitome of, of art and culture. And you know, this is where yeah. everything came out. And that's why I, I wanted to go to Spain and see all that. Yes. Allahu Akbar. Isn't the Hamra. like the most beautiful place That was the best, like that was the best place I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Allah. I just came back from there and I'm still like, I'm going, I'm going to go back. I'm I was blown back. away. I was blown away by it. Oh my gosh. Granada. And that's, 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 I haven't been so. They're amazing, oh, amazing. It's incredible. Well, speaking of art, I mean, Islamic Museum of Australia, can I talk Mashallah. about that? Yeah, of course. I mean, we know the story of people who go there and see the tour, non-Muslims, who, who, who experience the tour and, and literally come back. You would have heard from Shireen and Ramsey and, yeah, like, and stuff. Like, they, they change. Like, they change because it's right there in front of you, whether it's the inventions, whether it's the mosques or whether it's the, you know, the heritage that the early Muslims have brought into Australia as mm. from, you know, from the, from the Macassans. And people are transformed by that. And, and, and it's a very gentle immersion. Yeah. It's and you see a lot of people, we, we, we do events there, obviously, and you can see people actually Google searching stuff because yeah. they don't believe some no. of stuff. They think they've been sold. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they're doing a sales pitch. Ashton Gelch and Ashton Gelch just go, oh, I'm just like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I've seen <laughs> it because it was fun long. Amazing, amazing. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Uh, really appreciate your, you know, the, the conversation. It's been beautiful. We we love the ending the podcast uh, with an I am statement. And I'd love for you to say your I am statement in a single sentence if you can. Okay. Okay. It's going to be punctuated with a few commas, but I will, I will do my best. So I just came back for context. I came back from a conference in, in San Francisco just a few weeks back, which was a young women political leaders conference for women who are from the APEC region prior to the APEC summit that was there. And there was a motivational speaker 
by the name of, um, her last name was Jefferson Nuri. She was like, she was incredible, incredible woman. I got her name wrong, so I'll edit that out. But anyway, and she came out with a pro- uh, proclamation to all the women in the room who doubt themselves or who feel that they're, they're not achieving as much as they could. Who And these women are like, oh my God, we could have a podcast about these women. They're all women with political, I thought they were women with political aspiration, but they're women who've been in government or in politics and they're in their 20s and 30s. Wow. And some of them have achieved incredible things. I met the former vice president of Philippines and I met a woman who had been a political prisoner in Nicaragua because she had been protesting for the environment. Wow. A woman who'd been, she'd been, she'd been in um, solitary confinement for 606 days and so it could because she was protesting the environment. Yeah. But these women have come out and they're, they're not, they're angry, but they're, they're actually using their experience to change the world. And they've all been exiled out of their countries. And women exiled from Hong Kong, from China, from, um, from New Guinea, from Thailand, from Philippines, from Nicaragua, South America, from Morocco, I, I, the women from everywhere. And so the motivational speaker, she said to them a mantra, which I'm sticking with. She said, I want you to tell yourself this and believe it. She said, I am enough. I do enough. I have enough. And it was that gratitude for understanding that you're okay. What you're doing is okay for right now. This is where you're meant to be and it's serving you. And for what, I mean, it doesn't mean I can't aspire for more, but right now I am enough. I have enough and I'm doing enough. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for trusting us. Well, I haven't seen the finished product. <laughs> so far, Safi, you're so good. <laughs> Safi, so good. Did you say that? You should say that. Safi, so good. But um, yeah. Thank you very much. Beautiful, quick conversation. And please don't forget, guys, comment, share, and subscribe, please. That keeps any questions. Inshallah, please let us know. Inshallah, we'll forward on. Inshallah, as well. Oh, it's a pleasure to, to sit back and then and just yarn. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So much there. Bye.